Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Channel 5's VHS releases of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's Super Marionation shows were introduced by film message from Parker informing my ladies and gentlemen that all of the series were now available, including the one you were watching. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer, actor, comedian, musician. I always forget how many of these there are to cram in, so I cannot get them all. <laughs> Apologies for any have not got Mitch Ben. Mitch, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Apart from all of that, obviously. <laughs> well, mainly online, I guess. Did the Edinburgh Festival. Doing the odd live show here and there. Might be doing some more musical stuff in the fairly immediate future. I think I finally cracked how to get my third audio book out, so I'm going to try and get that done before Christmas of the terror thing. And also, I have more science fiction novels novels I'm meant to be writing, so I should probably get another one of those done. But in the meantime, yeah, I just got my column in the New European, got my Patreon up and running, which has basically, you know, been an absolute lifesaver these past few years, as you can imagine. And just that, just still, you know, making it up as I go along, just picking up the old weird little song commission here and there. I've just written a bunch of songs for a guy who does puppet shows, but, you know, it's, <laughs> he wanted funny songs, so I'm writing funny songs for him, so that's all good. Well, speaking of weird song commissions, your mm-hmm. first choice is something that i don't think you've ever been called on to do anything quite like this and as far as i know you've not covered it went but the second i pressed play it all came back to me that's stars by here and aid so mitch what was going on there this essentially was heavy metal band-aid or rather heavy metal we are the world because it came after usa for africa and in fact the whole thing came out it was a rather awkward bit of timing all told because it was recorded in 1985 i mean now that i've told you it's heavy metal band-aid you probably figured it all out for yourself it was a bunch of sort of you know mid-80s mainly american a couple of British hair metal acts got together and done a band-aid. You know, they wrote a song. It was mainly instigated by Dio. Mainly instigated by Ronnie Dio and his two guitar players. One of whom was Viv Campbell and I can't remember the other one. They wrote the song, I think, and just roped in all their heavy metal mates to record it, a la band-aid. It was recorded in 1985, I think, in the immediate aftermath of We Are The World. But I think there was some kind of quibble with trying to get clearance from everybody's record company 
Absolutely. So I think it maybe didn't come out until the end of 85, early 86. And on the back of that single, they also, I think, all contributed like odds and sods and rarities and outtakes to a compilation album that came out as well. So by the time it came out, the sort of people were not exactly sick of the All-Star Charity record, but the initial, because I mean, in this country, the All-Star Charity record thing kept going for basically the rest of the 80s. I mean, do you remember like stuff like Very A? Something I was trying to think, I mean, probably the last one was, there was a Hillsborough one, wasn't there? Was it Ferry Cross the Mersey? In the aftermath of Hillsborough, they got all the Scouse acts and do Ferry Cross the Mersey. I think that was, the All-Star Charity record was definitely a thing in this country right until the end of the 80s. But I think it, it kind of run out of its initial rush of enthusiasm for, you know, the All-Star. And also maybe there was a slight feeling that hard rock and heavy metal had been somewhat underrepresented in the whole Band-Aid slash Live Aid thing up until that point. They had that sort of rather abortive Led Zeppelin reunion that's so bad it got left off the DVD for Live Aid. But above and beyond that, there wasn't much attention being paid to this. But then again, this is the other thing about it being a slightly awkward bit of timing is it was sort of the critical nadir of hard rock in this country was sort of 85, beginning of 86. Everything changes at the end of 86 with two things. Basically, Run DMC and Aerosmith release Walk This Way and Bon Jovi release You Give Love a Bad Name and suddenly hair metal is big again. Certainly in this country. That was the point at which hair metal was getting back on the TV and was actually getting, you know, sort of gained some kind of currency and some kind of traction. But that was literally, I think, about eight to nine months after this came out. So this one, I remember, this record, I remember getting a bit of coverage in the American music press and bit of coverage here, but I don't think it got any airplay over here whatsoever. I don't ever recall this being... We may have caught a glimpse of it. Do you remember like when Top of the Pops in those days, they used to sort of let Jonathan King twat on about American stuff for like about five minutes in the middle of it? This may well have come up on one of those, and I think that would be the sum total of its coverage on it British... It did actually, in the breakers, because it got to number 26. Was that what it was? And all we right. saw of it on Top of the Pops was a clip where I'm sure most people watching would have known who most of these people were. Let's be honest. No, no. Well, that's the other thing is this is not a scene that was, you know, particularly embraced in this country. And here's the thing. Within all honesty, my knowledge of 80s American hair metal is not encyclopedic, but it's extensive. I probably know more about that kind of music than the average person. And it does rather flag up how utterly interchangeable American hair metal bands had gotten by 1985. Because not only can you not, with I would say the exception of Ronnie Dio and Rob Halford are the only singers who you can make out when they're doing the vocal bit but of course this being a mid-80s hair metal song it's also got about four minutes of guitar solos in the middle of it because of course all the lead singers have got to get to sing their verse but all the lead guitarists have got to play at least a bit of a solo so there's like a four minute composite guitar solo in the middle and bless them I defy anybody to be able to tell where one guitar player stops and the next one starts the only one you can just about hear when he turns up is Ingvi Malmsteen because he's more fast and florid and over faster than all the rest of them Eddie Van Halen was not there if Eddie Van Halen had been there you would have been able to hear him because he would have sounded like the one who's taking the piss out of all the others it does rather flag up how incredibly generic American hair metal had gotten by 1985 because you can't hear who's singing what and when the guitar solos start you can't hear who's playing what it really is all a bit of a mush in that respect 
But rather gamely, they did invite Spinal Tap, and Spinal Tap were there on the day. So that proves that Spinal Tap were embraced by the heavy metal community from day one. But what's weird about that is they don't appear to do. And I even watched the making of video, which is out there, because you know, all the charity things had to have a making of thing as well. Starting with the making of Band Aid was a genuinely good documentary. And they had obviously status quo were larking about, and Nigel yeah. Planer didn't end up on the record as Neil, but he was there and being in character. Yeah and complaining about all the technology being put on his voice. But in this, like, Tap don't even do any sort of funny stuff. And in the video, they're just there, they're just singing along. And you would think they were just, talk about the interchangeability, you would think they were just any other heavy metal singer. And I find that really strange because, you know, it's like, we're in on the joke, but you can't do any jokes. It has to be serious. Well, this is it. So maybe, you know, on the one hand, they got the joke and they embraced Tap. But on the other hand, it's just like, you know, serious face, guys, this is for charity. So in that respect, it is all, you know, maybe all a bit brow furrowed, you know. Oh, here's something I was meaning to talk to you about. You know, something which comes up on this show a lot, which is the Butterfly Ball animated short. Yes. You know, that's Ronnie Dio singing. Is it actually him singing? I knew it's it was, it was some of Deep Purple did the album. Yeah, it's Roger Glover put it together. Roger Glover, the bass player of Deep Purple, put the album together. But that track, because I remember listening to it thinking, I really doubt that's Roger Glover singing. I don't think he's got that kind of range. If it had been Deep Purple's next bass player, Glenn Hughes, he did have that kind of range and so he and David Coverdale kind of split the lead vocals in like the next iteration of Deep Purple but I remember thinking Roger Glover sings I had a bit of research no it's Ronnie Dio and once you know it's really obvious that it's Ronnie Dio singing the butterfly ball for all that it's this kind of weird sort of bit of Cod Sergeant Pepper psychedelia it's actually Ronnie Dio singing it I think this made a fair bit of money so that's good I guess but like I say it's from a timing point of view it was like really awkward and all concerned heavy metal and hard rock were not getting any kind of credibility any kind of attention it was kind of sneered at and looked down upon by the sort of pop music establishment, certainly in this country by about 85. And I say, ironically, literally less than 12 months later, it underwent this massive renaissance. So oddly enough, while this record came out a bit too late to really surf that wave of all-star charity records, it came out a bit too early to get any kind of airplay in Britain. Well, I think it marks the absolute end of... Well, there's one other thing I noticed about it, which is for all that we're talking about, the impetus, as you say, behind the record was that there's very little rock and metal representation yeah. in what have gone so far. There's very little female representation here, as in none. <laughs> Where's Lita yeah. Ford? We're a girls' school. I was really sp- In my memory, girls' school were on it, but they aren't. I'm not sure how big a deal girls' school ever were in the States. I could be mistaken about but that. But they dragged over Motorhead, who never didn't have girls' school with them. Oh, so. yeah, well, I, I don't think Motorhead kind of championed girls' school and used to bring them out as, not even support, they used to bring them out as double-edders. And, of course, they did that junk cover version of Please Don't Touch in about 1982, 83 it was I think and you're right there was not a lot of ladies in the upper echelons of heavy metal in the early 80s but it does also underline that as you say it did make me laugh watching that guitar solo section which is nearly the entire song where they're all trying oh, to yeah, 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 yeah. but that's yeah. the era when in metal the singer wasn't the star the guitarist no, no. was the star the guitarist led the band and yet after that as you say you get you know immediately after that Richie Sambora and Bon Jovi and Slash and Guns N' Roses yeah. a great guitarist really popular but they are a part of the band. Yeah. They did not seek to be at the forefront. And then you go into the whole Nirvana thing where it's well, the that's antithesis what, that's of really, that. So this is the end really of the it, yeah. guitar hero in a way. That's what really demolished it was grunge. Grunge made that. I mean, I did a whole section about this in my radio show about Bob Dylan, weirdly. I'm just talking about how the same thing which happened to guitar playing in America in the 80s happened to singing in the noughties. All the guitar players were all trying to be Eddie Van Halen or Ingby Malmsteen, all trying to play faster 
slower than each other to the point where the fact that this is actually meant to be music gets like it becomes a competitive sport essentially it becomes like grand prix racing in much the same way the sort of the trying to win the x-factor generation of vocalists it all becomes about trying to out melisma everybody and outrange everybody and everybody trying to sing like mariah carey but yeah what really put paid to that was grunge at the turn of the 90s and suddenly that widdly widdly guitar playing suddenly sounded unbelievably dated and silly i mean it's still there but it can only really i know it's not as good as i mean obviously that metal that music never went away but it survives best in a semi-ironic context like justin hawkins or like steel panther and even eddie van halen there was always a twinkle in eddie van halen's eye eddie van halen was a technically brilliant guitar player but never took himself particularly seriously steve Vai, the guy who was in dave lee roth's first band after he left van halen same kind of deal there's a wry humor to their playing like they can't quite believe what they're getting away with either that kind of guitar playing has always been most tolerable when it's wreathed in at least a layer of irony and if it survives to this day then that's how well one thing i will really say in favor of everyone involved in this is that you know most other because as you mentioned there were hundreds of sort of single on choir charity singles yeah and they're all full of people that say had left eastenders six months previously or you know people <laughs> who didn't know what they were doing there or Name, no names. We're, we're trying so hard not to get the Doctor in Distress out. Well, I was we're, going we're, to mention we're that. Really, we will we're really back dancing Doctor around in distress, Doctor in Distress. But, we're really, really pussyfooting around. You know, like. But you mentioned Ferry Aid. In the video for that, yeah. naming no popular television presenters, but somebody yeah. is craning their neck to be seen by the camera to the extent that I am worried they had to have surgery after it. But in this, because there was that kind of, that weird sort of honesty to 80s yeah. metal. Everyone comes across you know they're not there for the star value or you know no it's true even though they're trying to be the best guitar player they all seem like they feel it's up to us to do something the lyrics don't reflect that as well and i've really felt quite appreciative of that watching it all this time later that there wasn't ego involved really no i think you're right funnily enough you're absolutely right about the way in in particularly the later british charity singles it was a sort of generally speaking a sort of a last grasp at getting some kind of profile and oddly enough i think the celebrity big brothers i'm a celebrity get me out of here have rather replaced that that's how you come back trail it now but you're right that was how you come back trailed it at the end of the 80s well they reminded me of do you remember sun city by united artists against apartheid where the whole oh, yes, point very of that well. was that was mainly sort of well it was metal people involved and rappers as well basically saying we're not going to play yeah. this dreadful south african resort yeah and you know that wasn't for ego either so it reminded me more of that than it did i don't yeah. want to say do they know it's christmas because i think that had the best intentions as well but you know what i mean it seemed more yeah, like an it, alternative it, 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 to what was going on it became a bit of a cottage industry in the back half of the 80s didn't it the charity single and one did i mean i wrote a song about again it's another thing i wrote so there's one of the most disturbing because of our stars is it's got an intro in d most of it's in e because of course because hair metal but it's got an intro in d minor which is almost identical to the intro of a song i wrote 15 years later called tabloid journalist which is weird because i thought i stole it from fleetwood mac but uh, what the hell do i know but i wrote a song called waving at the poor on one of my albums about ostentatious acts of celebrity charity and they did start to leave a bit of a questionable taste in the mouth like why are you doing this 
this. Are you really helping or are you just basically polishing your halo? You know, there was an element of that. Do you remember Wishing Well by, gosh, Great Auburn Street Hospital? No, I don't. I remember Wishing Well by Town Strength Derby. Well, it was almost around exactly the same time. I feel <laughs> bad making fun of it, but it's just the lineup of celebrities they got. It was mainly Peter Cox from Go West, who had a kind of a bit of a look of, should I really be doing this on this face? <laughs> Backed up by people like Sylvester McCoy and Bonnie Langford were there. Right. Members of Shriekback, which is really Blimey. confusing. Spitting Image Puppet. I think it was probably Prince Philip and Michael Grade leaned into shot one of the chorus bits. And somebody dressed as a life-size Roland Rat. And it was just somebody had gone to the trouble of writing this song to make money for a children's hospital. And it was just, who should we get on it? Uh, who's around? Uh, who does uh, stuff? There must come a point at which those things start doing more on than good. Well, dare we mention Doctor in Distress. Yeah, I don't think that did anybody any favour. Let's be honest, it really didn't. If anyone doesn't know what that was... Yeah, just keep it that way. Keep it that way. Back away, step away from Google. You do not want to know. You do not want to know. Yeah, I think, actually, moving into the next choice, we need to get as far away from Doctor of Distress as we possibly can. So, have a guess where we're headed. Space Station Delta, the jump-off point for humanity's first momentous journey to the stars. The lightship Altares, the first of its kind to harness the limitless power of the photon, particles of light which can boost the ship to 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. This could create the effects predicted by Einstein's theory of relativity, effects that could shrink the very fabric of space, distort time, and perhaps alter the structure of the universe as we understand it. Okay, opening theme there from Into Infinity, a tune <laughs> I know really well that probably most of you have never heard. So, Mitch, what was this? This is a real curio, and it's a curio which has an odd little resonance for you and I, which I will come to in a moment. This was a Jerry Anderson one-off that I think was intended as maybe a pilot for something which, had it gone to series, would essentially have been lost in space with no jokes. It is mightily po-faced, partly because it was apparently commissioned as part of a kind of science and education strand by an American network. It goes by two different titles. Some people refer to it as Into Infinity. Some people refer to it as The Day After Tomorrow. Both titles appear on the screen at various times in the opening credits. I think one of them, I think Day After Tomorrow, may have been the intended name of a kind of portmanteau strand of scientifically literate sci-fi. That was what they were going for. They were going for scientifically literate sci-fi. So it's basically kind of a mashup of the plots of Lost in Space and Interstellar is the best way of describing it. It's like this prototype ship which has this thing called the photon drive that's going to get it up to almost the speed of light. There's this expedition that consists of two families or two family units. There's a mom, a dad and a son and a dad and a daughter. The idea being that 
because of time dilation, if this ship ever gets home at all, by the time it gets home, it's going to be like 200 years in the future. And they won't have aged and everybody on Earth will. So they have to take all their relatives with them. It feels irresistibly like it's meant to be set in some kind of Jerry Anderson extended universe. The only clues as to the fact that it's not are the presence of Nick Tate still playing almost exactly the same guy who plays in Space 99, but he's American rather than Australian. He's the sort of, you know, gruff but lovable starship pilot. And the fact that at one point you are, when they're prepping for launch of the space station, the moon is visibly still there. And this is obviously <laughs> set at some point in the late 21st, possibly early 22nd century. It's, uh, you know, further in the future than Jerry Anderson's stuff tended to be. But it's of interest for a few things. First of all, it's got one of those appearances by Brian Blessed, which will have modern audiences wondering why it's Brian Blessed because he's not doing any Brian Blessed. He's just being the dad. So the dad of one of the two family units that make up this mission is a very young looking Brian Blessed and he's just being dad. He's not doing the Brian Blessed stuff that we've all come to know and expect from Brian Blessed. And this ties in with the conversation that we had in the very first one of these I ever did when I was talking about Nobody's House, that absolutely forgotten haunted house kids show from ITV from 76 in which Brian Blessed turns up as the ghost of a kind of Fagin character and again is furiously dialing it down because he's trying to be sly and manipulative rather than deafeningly enthusiastic. The Brian Blessed thing doesn't really kick in until Flash Gordon right at the end of the 70s and he obviously just has so much fun playing the deafeningly enthusiastic Warrior King character that that's kind of all he ever then plays again for the rest of his career. But prior to that, Brian Blessed has lots of different modes. He can be quiet, he can be reflective. It probably is most famous part after uh, you know, obviously Zed Cars is the thing he first made his name in, but probably his most famous part on TV before he got into Flash Gordon was playing Augustus Caesar in I Claudius, and in I Claudius he only really does the Brian Blessed thing once, and that's it. Is there anyone here who has not slept with my daughter? You know, and that's really the only Brian Blessed moment he gets in it. And in this, he's just basically playing a sort of scientist dad and it would be quite interesting for people who only know brian for doing the brian thing would be looking at this and thinking what was the fucking point of getting brian blessed <laughs> if you're not gonna let him do any brian stuff and the point is he hadn't really gotten into brian mode yet but the other thing which is kind of interesting, okay just in passing its final act almost beat for beat anticipates the final act of the black hole four years later which is a spaceship gets trapped in the event horizon of a black hole realizes it has no choice except to go through it and try and survive and evidently going through black hole is all a bit acid trippy because that's what going through a black hole looks like an into infinity it all goes a bit psychedelic and of course as we know in black hole it all goes totally fucking freak out when you go through the black hole the other thing is the casting of the sun character in all this now the sun is played by an actor called Martin Lev. And he's an interesting character because obviously, I think if this had gone to series, he, for all that he's about 11, was obviously going to be like the Spock character because he's sort of completely logical and emotionless despite being 11. And he's obviously meant to be this kind of, well, again, nobody would have said so at the time, but this kind of neurodivergent child genius is the character that, you know, that they're prepping for him. The only other thing he did of any note was he's the bad guy in Bugsy Malone. He is, he's Dandy Dan, yes. He's Dandy Dan in Bugsy Malone around the same kind of time maybe a year or so later which is why 
while we're here, let's face it, one of the weirdest fucking films ever made. It's only really when you stop and think about it and you realize how weird, and actual fact in many ways, how deeply questionable a film Bugsy Malone is. I mean, for start, it's directed by Alan Midnight Express Parker. I mean, that is just, it's directed by the guy directed Angel Heart, for Christ's sake. And it's all right, it's a musical, it's set in the Prohibition era, it's about gangsters and malls. And oh, by the way, everybody in it is 11 years old. What? <laughs> Including Jodie Foster as the kind of disturbingly slinky gangster's moll. If anything, you know, making you feel even more wrong than when she was actually being a child prostitute in Taxi Drive. You would never get away with Bugsy Malone. But anyway, this young lad, Martin Lev, was from our bit of Liverpool. I because I re- He was. Because I remember, and this all gets a bit dark in a minute, I remember when I went to see Bugsy Malone at the Classic on Allerton Road, they had a note on the poster which said, Star's local boy. So he was not just Scouse, he was from our bit of Liverpool. How he ended up being an actor in Jerry Anderson and Bugsy Malone things, I don't know. Because, and here's where it gets all a bit grim, there's very little about him on the internet. Because not only were these his only two big actors, the only other two things you find out about him is that he was a leading campaigner in the 80s for awareness of fibromyalgia and ME and that he died aged about 30. So it looks like either he was campaigning for fibromyalgia and ME awareness because he himself was crippled with it. Either it got so bad that he died or it got so bad that he just couldn't take it anymore. So his story is all a bit dark. But yeah, he was not only from Liverpool, he was, I'm fairly sure. And I seem to recall there being something about this in the Echo as well at the time when Bugsy Malone came out, that Martin Lev was from somewhere in Allerton, somewhere in Mosley Hill, somewhere in that bit of town. So just, yeah, sorry if I just really ruined the there. I just really put everybody down, didn't it? Well, basically, the situation with this is it was between series of Space 1999, when it was possible the second series wasn't going to be made. That was also the point at which Sylvia finally disappeared from the picture. Right, And right. I have always felt that people don't appreciate enough what Sylvia brought to the table. You're almost certainly right. And I think in things like this, you start to see a tiny bit of that overall spark and of that quality control goes yeah. well. It doesn't really come back until Terrorhawks. I mean, yeah. I will say, my summation of this is basically, years ago, before we'd even seen it, Andrew Pixley wrote about it somewhere, and his right. comments were basically, more or less, everything about it is brilliant, apart from the script, which doesn't quite hang together. And I think yeah. that's absolutely spot on. It drags. It really does drag. I mean, it's only about, I think, about an hour long, but it's quite a slog to get to the end of it. It really is. And it's a shame, because it looks brilliant, and it has so much yeah potential but i think what makes it sort of more than some of its parts is for a long time there were all these well i was going to say jerry anderson but you know jerry and sylvia anderson as well projects that yeah. were really hard to get hold of i mean the obvious one for a long time was the secret service but there was also yeah. the investigator that pilot that was never heard which you know yeah. when you see it i can see why it wasn't heard well, it wasn't ever heard yet. four feather falls <laughs> and supercar were hard to get hold of at one point there's doppelganger which again had a different title in america where it was called journey to the other side of the sun yeah and I think again we got the better title over here like with Into Infinity mm-hmm. but that was really elusive for a very long time and it was a thrill sometimes more in wanting to see these things and actually tracking them down and I think that really for a lot of people including
including Professor Brian Cox, apparently. That made Into Infinity something special because just from the name, it sounded brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's going for, like I say, apparently it's commissioned as part of a quasi-educational strand in the States that was going to be sort of scientifically literate. So it's kind of going for this kind of pre-interstellar idea of dealing with the unfortunate realities of light speed or sub-light travel. It's reaching for a scientific literacy that, you know, not much science fiction at the time really ever really bothered with, including, let's be honest, you know, a lot of Jerry Anderson stuff. I mean, the physics of Space 1999 don't really bear any kind of close examination. <laughs> well, the start Captain Scarlet and the Mr. Rons where Captain Black just becomes an isotope for a day yes. as well. <laughs> exactly. Also, this has a caption at the end saying E equals MC squared, which did make yes. sense. Did you notice how much the music sounds like the Blake 7 theme? By Derek Wadsworth, who does the music for Space 1999 Season 2, and this yeah. is the first thing you've done for them. Well, what struck me at the time, it's in particular, it's the bridge. It's got the same bridge as the Blake 7 theme tune, which of course wouldn't be heard for about another two years after this. Whether Dudley Simpson had this, but of course, around about the same time, Music Is My First Love by John Miles comes out, and in the kind of cold orchestral section of that, it does exactly the same thing it again. Does. Ba, 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 da, da, ba, 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 da, da. That bit. That's the bit, because it into Infinity goes... And everybody knows how it does it in Blake's But that particular kind of suspended fourth fanfare comes round in the bridge of all of those bits of music at about the same point. But the other one I noticed just recently is that the bridge of the Jason King theme tune by Laurie Johnson is exactly the same as the equivalent bit in the original Star Trek theme tune. So whether or not Laurie Johnson had heard Alexander Courage's Star Trek theme tune when he wrote the theme tune of Jason King... Yeah. Exactly the bloody same. So, you know, these things come round. These things come round a bit. You know, I'm willing to put that down to coincidence. Maybe people have just decided that's what space travel sounded like in the mid-late 70s. I don't know. The really weird thing about it is, I take it you know who directed it. It was Charlie Quentin, wasn't it? It was. And when you look online, it's considered part of a lull in his career where he had to work in television. But when you look at what he did on television... We did a bunch of Space 99s, didn't he? He did a few Space 99s, yeah. He did things like Man in a Suitcase, Danger Band, The Professionals he did quite a bit of, The Adventures of Black Beauty but also, do you remember the Dick Turpin with Richard O'Sullivan? Oh, fondly! That was Massive! Great. That was huge. That was strictly big in its day. It was! It was you know, if he directed that, well done yeah. Charles, I'm saying. <laughs> well, we're staying in space and roundabout ish, give or take a year, 1978 for your next choice, which is a film I know I have seen but I genuinely don't remember anything about it. <laughs> I shall create for you an army of humanoids, indestructible human robots. This is the day of the humanoid, when man faces his greatest challenge from outer space. See them duel with laser guns and lethal arrows of shimmering Phlegathon. Discover the secret of Tantan, who disarms a mutant space creature programmed to kill. Cheer Kip, the robo-dog, as he blasts invaders from the blue planet Noxon. This time they come too close. The humanoid. 
Okay, trailer there for The Humanoid, 1979. <laughs> I can barely contain my laughter after watching that trailer, so Mitch, just fill us in, please. Here's the thing. There was a genre of movies which I've never heard described as spaghetti Star Wars, but I'm not going to the same <laughs> spaghetti Star Wars. There is a whole branch of the Italian film industry that basically exists to make knockoffs of American movies. And sometimes they do it in such a way as to actually revolutionize the art form, like Sergio Leone with the Western. And sometimes they just do it in the 60s. And sometimes they just do it for a cheap cash in, like they did with Star Wars in the late 70s. Now, the most famous of these is a thing called Star Crash, in which, to his eternal shame, Christopher Plummer is the bad guy and David Hasselhoff is the good guy. It's also got Carolyn Monroe running around in a bikini. So, uh, okay. The weird thing about the humanoid Lumanoide as it is it should be referred to as directed by Aldo Lado who calls himself George Lewis for the occasion because he's <laughs> was that so somebody would hear a radio announcer saying it and think they said George Lucas almost certainly yes because the thing about this is it's an absolutely brazen Star Wars knockoff that actually has no reason to be a Star Wars knockoff except in order to be a Star Wars knockoff and to get the attendant attention that came with being a Star Wars knockoff in 1979 because the plot has nothing to do with Star Wars it's just the production design the production design clings as closely to Star Wars as it possibly can the thing about the humanoid though is it got a theatrical release because I remember seeing this in the aforementioned classic cinema in Liverpool in 1979 now I'm fairly sure Star Crash didn't get a theatrical release in this country but this did I went to see this, A, because it was a Star Wars knockoff when I was nine years old. And of course, in that interregnum between Star Wars and Empire, you kind of took what you could get. We were perfectly happy with Battlestar Galactica for a little while there. We lapped up the black hole. But this one was principally not because it's got a cast of recent Bond people. So the heroine is Corinne Clary, who's the woman who gets eaten by the dogs in Moonraker. The evil bitch queen of the universe is Barbara Bach and Spy Who Loved Me, around about the time she married Ringo. So she's and now Lady of, Starkey. Yeah, she is now Lady Starkey, blessed. And the protagonist, and not necessarily the hero, is Richard Keel. We are in this sort of... Oh, apparently it is set on a very, very future Earth. A very future Earth which has been renamed Metropolis, but nobody paid DC Comics any money for that, I've no doubt. The bad guy, who is Darth Vader in everything other than name, including his costume, other than the fact that you can see his face through his helmet, but in every other respect, it's the Darth Vader costume, is trying to come back to reclaim his blah, 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 whatever. He has an evil scientist in tow, who's played by a guy called Arthur Kennedy, who won the Tony Award for being in the original production of Death of a Saint. I noticed. <laughs> oh my god, there's a career arc for you. And he is a mad scientist who has developed this bomb that turns people into mindless slave robots. And he decides that the perfect person to test it out on is Richard Keel, who is just a big, cheerful, happy-go-lucky space pilot. So he drops this bomb on him, and it basically just turns him back into Jaws. And then, probably, I was going to say anticipating, but almost coinciding with the plotline of Moonraker, in which Jaws switches sides and becomes a good guy at the end because you know everybody really loved Jaws and Spyro loved me he is deprogrammed by this curious little Tibetan kid who follows the heroine around and is painfully kind of meant to be the Dalai Lama and what I love about that kid is he's always going around sort of being all zen and espousing non-violence but he's got two magical minders who appear out of nowhere whenever he's in trouble and shoot bad guys with lightsaber arrows he's all about non-violence except for the stuff he gets his mistakes 
mysterious elf minders to do. And then thereafter, Richard Keel is now essentially Jaws in the last act of Moonraker, where he is a big, dumb, unspeaking brute, but working for the good guys. And that's really all you kind of need to know. Like I say, plot-wise, it's got nothing to do with Star Wars, but the production design reproduces Star Wars in every respect that it's possibly capable of, to the point where this actually kind of works in its detriment, because so many of the set pieces and sequences are only there in order to be like bits in Star Wars. So there is, obviously, a long, slow pass over the camera of a big triangular battlecruiser, because Star Wars. There is a bit when the good guys are escaping in their spaceship, and they get chased by the fighter planes and the bad guys, so good guy gets into the gun turret and fights them off because Star Wars. And the trouble with this is it gives you just such an immediate point of comparison. You're just like, well, this looks shit compared to the bit in Star Wars that it's trying to reproduce frame for frame. Whereas if they just actually, you know, done their own thing, then that might not have been so painfully bloody apparent. Oh, and there's tits in it, which there never were in Star Wars, which I completely forgotten about until I rewatched it the other day. How that didn't stick in my mind at nine years old, I don't know. But again, in this kind of, in its cheerfully omniplagiarist way barbara back's character is basically countess bathory so she is the wife and consort of evil lord not darth vader but we are given to understand that she is in fact incredibly old and is being kept young and beautiful by means of sapping the life energies out of young maidens and we see this happen in which a young maiden is very graphically stripped naked and then stuffed into this kind of surgical iron maiden that sticks loads of needles in it, the better to extract this life agents. Rather noticeably, when Corinne Clary, the heroine, gets stuffed into the same machine later on, she gets to keep her top on. But, you know, anonymous third Italian lady from the left, no such dignity was afforded her. It's a real curious, but what is particularly curious about it is the fact that I remember, because it is desperately cheap looking in that real spaghetti star wars way it's not quite up to you know turkish star wars standards but it, it is desperately cheap looking but i remember this got a proper theatrical release i remember going to see it i think it got onto the cover of starburst it was quite a big deal when it came out whereas you look at it now your brain instantly files it alongside all the other cheap and nasty spaghetti star wars knockoffs yeah, because there was a whole strand of them. I think it starts with, and obviously it declines in quality and standards over the years, it starts with Battlestar Galactica, really. And it ends yeah. up in the early to mid-80s with Benji Zaks and the Alien Prince, which obviously they couldn't get the money to do on the big screen yeah. they did it on TV, where they've all got that thing of, it's very clearly, and I even to an extent think Battlestar Galactica was slightly guilty of this, somebody at some point has said that Star Wars did quite well, do something that's a bit like it. And without in any way trying to work out what the appeal of Star Wars was, why it was so different, why it connected with kids, they just take the surface elements, like it's always somebody who's a bit like Darth Vader, and just yeah. shoved them on the screen. And it never quite... I think, even as kids, we knew when we were being sold a bunch of counterfeit <laughs> fibers by yeah, a sci-fi yeah. film. And the really weird thing is, Aldo Lalo was more normally associated with sort of second division Jello films, like he did short right. of Glass Dolls and Who Saw Red Die, which has got George Lazenby in it. Late Night Trains, which is on the official Video Nasties list, and I'm still not sure what he was doing there. But, again, going back to the thing about the idea of career lulls, you know, you would normally say, oh, it's a shame that he got reduced to doing this, but the one thing I'll say about this film is, it does look like he was having fun. Oh, he looks like he's having the time of his life. But, I mean, I always regard, you know, because, to my mind, the one standout among all the Star Wars, because that was my feeling when Guardians of the Galaxy came out in 2014, when you go, oh, they're doing Star Wars, James Gunston and Star Wars, 
stars. I go, no, no, no. James Gunn's doing Battle Beyond the Stars. This is what this feels like to me. It feels like a much glossier version, not of Star Wars, but of all the cheesy Star Wars knockoffs that came out in 1979. And Battle Beyond the Stars is a great one because Battle Beyond the Stars is absolute classic Roger Corman. The one thing Roger Corman was a genius at was getting the most out of his money. Famously, Mask of the Red Death, incredibly lavish production because it's being shot on the sets of Beckett when nobody was looking. Battle Beyond the Stars, it's almost like, you know, Corman thinks to himself, well, just because you're doing a cheapo quickie Star Wars knockoff, there's no reason to do a bad cheapo quickie Star Wars knockoff. And so what he does is he ropes in a bunch of 20-somethings who are all fresh out of film school who nobody's ever heard of, but who he somehow correctly identifies as the future of North America cinema so the scripts by like a 27 year old john sales and the model effects are by a 25 year old jim cameron and the score is by a 25 year old james horner and the thing about battle beyond the stars is that score subliminally adds a couple of million dollars to the budget the fact that it's got that really lavish orchestral score makes that whole movie feel way more expensive or certainly is the music for humanoid is by eddie fucking Morricone. That's one of the things I couldn't believe about it, that, wait a minute, we're going to wind that back on Wendy, because obviously that name meant nothing to me in 1979 when I saw it as a kid, but Ennio Morricone, one of the greatest, perhaps the single most innovative film composer of all time. Not only did he do this, but the music's terrible. <laughs> it's, re- <laughs> it's really it bad. Is. It adds nothing, you know, and it's uh, Ennio, what were you, oh my god, I hope, the, I was going to say, I hope the money was decent, but I'm almost certain that it wasn't. And one of the things which is a bit of a shame, actually, is the character that Richard Keel plays very briefly at the beginning at the end before he gets the mind control bomb dropped on him and it's a literal bomb incidentally with mind control written on it he's actually quite a fun character he's just like this big amiable space pirate and he's actually got dialogue and turns out Richard Keel can deliver dialogue he's got that kind of big low gurgly voice he sounds a bit like Ted Levine you know it's all the way down there you know he kind of speaks like this and it kind of suits him entirely you know and then when he's playing this the sort of the big friendly space pirate you just think that's a great character why couldn't we have had a movie about him why was it necessary to turn him back into jaws just because he got richard keel that's a bit of a shame i could have quite happily sat there i mean he's got an unbelievably annoying robot dog sort of sub canine robot dog because of course that's the other thing it was an absolute prerequisite to have cute robots in the star wars knockoffs to the point where there's even one in clash of the bloody titans there's the clockwork owl that was what you had to have in all these star wars knockoffs at the end of the 70s you had to have a cute robot so you got vincent in black and you know you've this really annoying robot dog it was a good period for robot dogs in the late 70s wasn't it because obviously you had canine you got that thing you had the one that was played by a chimp in Battlestar Galactica yes that was Muffet the, the Daggett, Daggett. Yes. was actually played it, by a chimp in a robot figure off. yeah yeah I've got some of the Battlestar Galactica action figures as well well action figures came out because of course that was the other thing is that all sci-fi movies had a toy line even when it subsequently turned out this is a really bad idea such as Alien they made Alien action figures and why for a movie that would fuck you up for life if you saw it at anything younger than about 14? Well, I had, I definitely had Scotty and Persis Cambata from Star Trek yeah. Motion Picture, which, you know, on the one hand, it makes sense to have Star Trek merchandise, but those yeah. figures and the way they were rendered in that film were not exciting figures. They no. were just people in grey uniforms. And it's not an exciting film, let's be honest. <laughs> no. it's, it's not a bad film, but it's a long fucking walk to nowhere that movie. 
movie. It really is. Well, of course, they didn't do at the end of it what I think they should have done, which is which obviously is... the Fine Voyager, which has the yeah. golden record on it, you know, with the sounds of her. They should have yes. played it, and it should have played Leonard Nimoy's version of Abraham Martin and John. <laughs> but it sounds like he's upset because he missed the bus. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of music, I wasn't familiar with the theme from this, and having listened to it, I'm wondering how many percussion boxes they'd raided beforehand. probably including the kitchen sink in that disco funk madness there. Mitch, who was a man called Sloan? This was a very short-lived American TV James Bond knockoff from the very end of the 70s. And I remember it being shown on ITV. It exists in kind of two different forms. This is the interesting... Well, just about the only really interesting thing about it. There's a pilot movie, and when it was on ITV, they just showed the pilot movie as episode one, which is weird because the rest of the series is very different to the pilot movie. So on ITV, you just watched episode one of a new show and then tuned in next week and the entire format and leading man have changed for no apparent reason. That pilot movie, I think, got retitled in some instances, apparently, Death Ray 2000, which is a bit bloody cheeky, again, coming back to Roger Corman. But it's essentially a rather cornball James Bond knockoff in which you have a Bond stand-in who's called Thomas R. Sloan, who in the pilot certainly is not so much a full-time employee of, I think they're called Unit, they aren't are they, the good guys, unit, rather awkwardly? Run by yeah. the director as well. Run by the director, yes. But actually, one of the few interesting bits of casting it is Dan O'Hurley he has this kind of M-like boss, except he's nothing like M. He's this kind of eccentric old loony who has whose best friend is a, an AI called Effie. He's actually quite a fun character. They tidy him up a bit for the series, but certainly in the pilot, he's this kind of mad old bastard. But in the pilot, it's just basically a sort of fairly cornball Bond knockoff. You have Clive Revel playing this very Bondish villain who's stolen this death ray that instantly desiccates anything you fire it at, and we end up pursuing him to the Alps and we end up destroying him by tricking him into firing his death ray in a big mirror. The other thing they do is absolutely beat for beat knock off the way all Roger Moore Bond movies ended, which is having the bad guy's sidekick come back for one last swipe at him after the principal bad guy's dead. And the bad guy's indestructible sidekick is an absolute beat for beat knockoff of T. He from Live and Let Die in that he's a huge black guy with a shaved head and a metal arm, in this case called Talk. Now, in the pilot, Sloan is played by a guy called Robert Logan, who is a complete charisma vacuum. 
and also slightly awkwardly has kind of big Noel Edmonds hair, which even in 1979 just looks all fucking wrong on a super spy. So when we come back the next week for the series, which I think was made quite a long time later, he's been recast and is now played by Robert Conrad, who looks a hell of a lot older than him. That's all I, I checked. He's not that much older than him. He's only actually about five or six years older than him, but he seems to belong to a completely different generation. Partly because, I mean, I don't know, I'd never seen Wild Wild West. I've still never seen Wild Wild West. I just know that he played the lead in Wild Wild West, which was kind of a James Bond thing, but cowboys. And he's more suited to playing this kind of character, but he does very much feel like a 60s guy. And that, if anything, is probably what's wrong with the show, is that it's a 60s show. This show would have worked in the 60s, but they're making it in 1979. It's horrifically dated if you watch it now, but I seem to recall it feeling fairly dated when you watched it then. It very much felt like a kind of a throwback to your man from Uncle days. You're not that there's anything wrong with that in principle, but it hadn't really updated very much. And the other thing which has changed since the pilot episode is the indestructible sidekick character, who was definitely killed off at the end of the movie, is now back and is now the good guy's sidekick. Again, almost anticipating Jaws's character arc, that, you know, they bring him back in Moonraker and then he switches sides. Well, in this, he's inexplicably resurrected and has already switched sides. So, obviously, they've decided that the only really cool thing from the pilot is we really like the big black guy with the metal hand to get him back and so he's now the good guy's psychic and he's played by this incredibly striking guy called Juti Kabuku who's about you know six foot seven six foot eight and he's not quite Tihi because Tihi's just got that prosthetic arm with the big evil scissors he's more like a cross between Tihi and the bad guy from Enter the Dragon who if you recall has kind of interchangeable false hands with lots of different attachments his metal hand is like a sort of a Swiss army knife you know it has all kinds of attachments and everything but the only real saving grace of the first episode of the actual run is that that week's guest big bad is Roddy McDowell who is always the best thing in anything he's in but interesting the plot of that first episode is kind of a knockoff of the cybernauts from the Avengers he's a guy who's making indestructible android copies of people but then his chief android who rather bizarrely looks like a sort of six foot six Keir Starmer then goes all Skynet on his ass and overthrows him and takes charge of the army of robots and starts pursuing his own agenda. They were not well received. I think they were one of those mid-season cancellations. There's only 12 episodes of it ever got made. But I remember this being, this would have come on sometime in my last, maybe second to last year at primary school. And people were watching it because, you know, it was a fun spy show on, an, I don't know, Wednesday night on ITV, whenever it was. But it's another one which ran for a few months and then was gone and then seemed to disappear from the public consciousness the minute it was over. Some of these things, they get mentioned from time to time even the really short-lived ones you know you know the obvious one being firefly that was the all-time classic mid-season cancellation that people just will not shut up about but this was you know it seemed to make very very little lasting impression on anybody well i think one of its main problems is that it isn't just looking back to as you say the wild wild west mission impossible the man from uncle it's a mishmash of a lot of things that do not sit together there's a lot of the early 70s bond about it or at least yeah. what they think is the early 70s bond there's a bit of a disco tinge to it there's very early attempts at what they think a computer looks like at that point yes the opening titles there's an episode called the venus microbe because of course there was it's an american series 1979 of course there's absolutely nonsense science in it and i think all of these things it's trying to be up to date while peddling something that was very much out of date as well yeah and i think because of that that's probably why it didn't catch up there's a moment that have passed but they were trying to make it the future i mean 
and that's, I guess, is something that, you know, all spy franchises sort of wrestle with, is that this is basically a concept that belongs in the... And this is why, because, you know, at the moment, there's much discussion about what, if anything, is going to happen next in the Bond movies. You know, it was never really explained with Robert Brown whether he was meant to be a different character from Bernard Lee or the same guy recast. This is a problem that the spy movies have always had, is how do you update something which is essentially anachronistic? Because, you know, this all really belongs in the Cold War era. You know, how do you sort of synthesize that? Well, I guess, oh, you know, the Cold War era is kind of back. There is that. <laughs> That's possibly not a bad platform to base things on. The Russians are the bad guys again, to the immense delight of thriller writers everywhere. Well, A Man Called Slow might have fallen under the radar a bit, but do you remember who else clearly remembered it in the 90s? Punt and Dennis had a short-lived ah. BBC One primetime show called The Imagination of Punt Dennis. Punt yeah. and Dennis Show, yes. in which there was a kind of a half-bond, half-ITC series running sketch parody called A Man Called Martin. Right. So I'm absolutely convinced that that must have been A Man Called Sloan, because that is the sort of cultural reference they would have zeroed in on as well. Oddly enough, considering I then ended up working with them for 17 years, I didn't actually see that much of that. Also, they do not remember imaginatively titled that fondly, because it kind of dropped them in it, because, of course, they were massive in the White House at the beginning of the 90s with Rob and Dave. And then Rob and Dave were with Avalon, who are the most notoriously kind of sharkish and rapacious management company in comedy. And the four of them really wanted to tour the White House, take it on the road. But Avalon deliberately broke them up, apparently, because they wanted Rob and Dave to be this new generation of rock star comedians. And so that was the idea of getting Rob and Dave to play Wembley Arena in this whole idea of comedy is a new rock and roll. And it was very much perceived at the time that Rob and Dave were the rock and roll ones and the Stephen Hugh were the kind of the cosy ones, you know, although that was really just all about their dress sense rather than anything else. Just Rob and Dave looked like an indie band and Stephen Hugh didn't. They then split them up and Rob and Dave have the Newman and Badil show on BBC Two, which gets really good ratings for a BBC Two show. And then Stephen Hugh get the imaginatively titled show on BBC One, which gets pretty good ratings for a BBC Two show because they were still basically a BBC Two act. But because it was perceived that they were the mainstream ones, they got given the BBC One show, which, of course, then underperformed because they're still basically BBC Two guys. And then they couldn't get back on TV for a long time. In fact, Steve never really properly has. And when I started working with them in the late 90s on The Now Show, I started on 99 on The Now Show, they were very much kind of comeback trailing it. You know what I mean? They were trying to sort of building the audience back up. And then, of course, the weird thing which happened was, while I was in the middle of doing The Now Show, Hugh got massively famous again without us really noticing. You know, because we were just working with him week in week out but meanwhile over on the TV he was one of the team captains on Mott which is the biggest panel show in the country and then he was dad in Outnumbered which is one of the biggest sitcoms in the country so suddenly Hugh got massively famous again and this would only really occur to us when we'd go out as a gang together somewhere and he'd get mobbed and the rest of us would get completely ignored <laughs> we just think oh yeah right he's famous again so I haven't actually seen that much of the imagine I remember it going out I remember seeing bits of it because I never missed the White House the White House was, was around my there's a few things is weird because you know things were coming and going really fast because I did languages at university so I spent the whole of the year of 1990 to 91 sort of summer of 1990 to the summer of 91 I was out of the country first in France then in Spain then in Canada so I completely missed the initial rise of Vic and Bob when I went out of the country you know like the, all the comedy with people were talking about 
that was one thing. And then by the time I came back, everybody was obsessed with Vic and Bob, and I had no idea what any of this shit was about. So it took me a long time to get the hang of Vic and Bob. I completely missed their initial rise. Yeah, I mean, the pilot in particular is kind of hard work. It really takes its time to get where it's going. I mean, if, it, if you're in any way, you know, listeners, if your curiosity is anyway peaked, I would skip the pilot and cut straight to the yeah. Robert Conrad ones. Very little of what it sets up gets held over into the series anyway. And like I say, the, the leading man's a plank with footballer's hair and just looks all wrong. Okay, well, moving on to the next choice now. I've no idea what I can use as a clip for this at the time of recording, but I will say it's possible there are more than a few henchmen in A Man Called Sloan that looked a bit like these chaps. Okay, I say no idea what I've used there, but that was to represent busybodies, a toy I completely forgotten about until you mentioned them. So, Mitch, they're very similar to another toy line, aren't they? They are, I would say, fundamentally. Well, here's the thing: they are a Playmobil knockoff that were launched around the same time as Playmobil in this country. But do you remember that when Playmobil first appeared, they weren't called Playmobil; they were called Play, play people. people. So, Play People and Busybodies emerged onto the British market at around the same time. I mean, I'm guessing about 76, 77. Play people were, I think, either rebadged or made under license. Playmobil's German, isn't it? And play people were either being made, because this is a conversation that you and I keep coming back to, is how many of the toys we played in the 70s, we had no idea were either rebadged or relicensed foreign brands under a different name. So, of course, all the Star Wars figures that you and I bought were Palatoy. We'd never heard of Kenner, and then it was only something you discovered that Palator was a British company that was producing them under license from Kenner. I would think I was well into my teens before I found out that Action Man was G.I. Joe, and that the figure I had instead of an Action Man, which is a cowboy figure I mentioned on a couple of occasions, was called Johnny West. I knew him as Cowboy Kid. So Play People was the British name for Playmobil, but I think they were either produced by a British company under license, or they were just rebadged and imported from Germany. But almost exactly the same time as they were launched there was a rival line came out called busybodies that were almost identical the only real difference was they were slightly bigger and you could move their legs independently of each other because playmobile you know they can bend at the waist but their legs don't move independently of each other so their legs always either stick straight out under them or they stand up probably makes it easier for them to stand up but busybodies their legs moved they had individually articulated legs didn't bend at the knees but they did have you know two separate hip joints which Playmobil famously do not. And I think they were very much set up to rival play people, but I think they instantly ran up against the fact that play people slash Playmobil already had a quite an extensive range of environments and accessories that were being made by the German, you know, host company that could be imported and then expanded upon once you got them over here. Whereas busybodies were kind of starting from scratch. And I think they produced a lot of figures, but I think they had real difficulty competing in the kind of vehicles and buildings 
Bulls end of things, the way that Playmobil had kind of ready to go. So they didn't last very long. They kind of came and went in about two or three years, I think. And they're another one of these things. There's very little mention I can find of them on the internet, also combined with the fact that Busy Bodies is not an easy thing to Google. There seems to be no consensus as to whether it's all one word or not for a start. But there's not much out there. I think they're made by a Welsh company, I think I might answer. Yes, Metoy Playcraft, apparently. That's right, yeah. See, I remember the name Metoy turning up on other things. They came and went quite quickly, I think. I don't think they lasted very long. Well, I think one problem they had is, looking at them now, they're not as visually appealing as Playmobil slash Play People. They've, they've no, they're, they're a bit ugly. Yeah, although they're bigger, they're squatter as well. And they've got, although they've got almost the same face, they've got a sort of half Conan the Barbarian, half Neil Morrissey appearance. They look like down-the-market knockoffs of play people. And in yeah. a way, that's exactly what they were. But also, they seem to be emblematic of those sort of toys you got around them where there wasn't any mythology at all. No, In indiscriminate no. settings, they had jobs and that was it. Like, you know, here's a toy fireman for you. Or even Playmobil, at least... You know, you had things like there was a Wild West one. There was, I remember yes. seeing somewhere once a space station, which was amazing. Yeah. And I Googled that recently and it still looks amazing now. So there was some kind of context to them. Whereas things like this didn't have any sort of world you could immerse yourself in. And it was literally just you had a toy and that was it. There was no way of constructing a game around it. Well, that was it. I mean, the thing about Playmobil is, like I say, they had a head start in that I think it had been up and running in Germany for quite a while. And so there was already quite a catalogue of, you know, vehicles and accessories and environments. I think the busybodies had, you know, sort of costumes like professions. I think you could yeah. buy doctor and nurse ones or you could maybe buy police ones or you could maybe buy fireman ones. But I don't think anybody had made a fire engine you no. know, or a police station or a police car. It has to be a pretty big fire engine for them, to be honest. Well, yeah, because they were slightly bigger than Playmobil as well. Because, of course, well, Playmobil, famously, they made a really rather gorgeous Starship Enterprise about three or four years ago, which is about 500 quid and about four feet long, but it's rather beautiful. But yeah, so I think that was the main problem that they had. But this is, again, I guess a thing in the 70s is the kind of the British knockoff version of international toy lines. One wonders if we're going to get a Cindy movie. We should really get a Cindy movie now. And it should be, you know, deliberately all a bit British and low budget. And then you had, I think one of your previous guests mentioned, Pepper was kind of the half-sized Cindy doll. British knockoffs of American toys. I mean, British rebadged or re-licensed versions of American toys is one thing. But you also have the just sort of this a shameless rip-off. So this is a shameless rip-off, I'm guessing, of a, you know, it's a bit too close to be coincidence. I'm wondering how they got away with it, to be honest. Well, I mean, the thing is, maybe they just didn't know that Playmobil were planning on launching in Britain and thought they could try and maybe Playmobil only launched in Britain because these guys were after the market. Who knows? Maybe that's why Playmobil Playmobil launched in Britain under the name Play People, under the anglicised name Play People, because these Welsh guys were basically trying to sort of corner the market before they got there. This is an interesting question that I've not been able to find out the answer to. When do you think Play People changed to Playmobil over here? That I couldn't tell you. Quite early on, I suspect, because, you know, hardly anybody remembers that they were ever called anything else. I know, I have no idea. I mean, I, like I say, I would hazard a guess that it was in two or three years of the launch because the fact that they were ever called anything else seems lost in time so who knows okay we're moving on to your last choice now and i'm wondering if anyone watching these guys on the television might well have lined up some of their play people into an approximation of the band i don't mind 
Jesus doing the kids are all right. I've got some thoughts on that. On Checkers Plays Pop in 1979, Mitch, what was going on here? Well, these guys weren't the first ones to pop into my head. I'll talk about who were the first ones to pop into my head in a minute because there we really are going deep. It's only when I Googled them I found out that these guys were actually a real band who did actually form as a band to me because the only place I ever remember seeing these guys was on kids' TV shows and in looking. And there was, it seems to me, in the mid-late 70s, a whole kind of genre of band that seemed to exist primarily on kids' TV shows. Very little bothering of the actual pop charts, but they would turn up a lot on things like Checkers Plays Pop, on things like Run Around, on things like Get It Together, and in the pages of Look It. And this lot, very much, because the weird thing about it is, if you saw a photo of them, you instantly think Beatles tribute band, because they're not just trying to look retro 60s, they're trying to look as much like the Beatles as possible. They even appear to be trying to look like specific Beatles. But their first single is a cover of the Who's Kids Are Alright. So that's a bit of a weird thing to do. One thing is to model yourself visually on one 60s band and then cover it, and actually quite some substantially different 60s band the who were you know very idiosyncratic in many ways they're very unusual and the thing about the who is musically they're upside down generally with a band you have a rhythm section usually consisting of the bass player and the drummer and maybe the rhythm guitarist and they just lock down the groove and then the lead guitarist plays all kinds of crazy flourishes over the top of this the who are musically upside down pete is the rhythm section the guitar player is the rhythm section he's locking down the groove with these big pumping chords and the ostensible rhythm section as in keith moon on the drums and john entrisle on the bass they do all the crazy flourishes so you've got keith moon hardly ever just locks down the groove he like basically plays one long drum fill for the entire song and entrisle almost never just throbs away at the root note he's always doing all these runs and fills and you know so the who are a musically quite unusual band in that they are musically upside down the pleasers are not musically upside down they're just a fairly straightforward beat group but what was interesting about them is it's like i say you've got this band who are visually very very obviously modeling themselves on one 60s band and musically going after somebody else entirely which is just weird but they were one of those bands that seemed to get because there was a lot of crossover between a particular section of the pop world and kids tv you had bands who were not necessarily conceived as if you had a, a big kids following you would get your own tv show like the bay city rollers got their own tv show almost immediately and it was terrible but it was on and it was a thing because they were massive everybody knows that pretty much the last thing mark boland did was get his own kids tv show and he if anything was comeback trailing it at the time you know this was like a good five or six years after his heyday you also got bands who seem to have sort of existence in parallel to kids tv shows do you remember flintlock flintlock were a band that were basically spun off the tomorrow people of all things because their drummer was in the Tomorrow People. He's also, I should just say for anyone listening, he is yeah. the other person in that clip of Paul Shane on Pebble Mill at Bond singing across <laughs> that loving feeling. That's Mike Holloway. Blimey. Well, there you go. Mike Holloway was a Tomorrow person and he was the drummer in a band called Flintlock. And Flintlock, I don't think they ever got their own TV show. But do you remember a very, very young Pauline Quirk basically had a sketch show on Kids ITV? They were in that. Yeah, Pauline's Quirk. They were in that. Yeah, Pauline's Quirks. They were like, the house band in that so flintlock were a band who were essentially were created within the realms of kids itv but then actually put sort of you know proper records out the pleasers i now discover were actually a real band 
but I don't recall ever seeing them anywhere. I'm fairly sure they never did Top of the Pops. I'm fairly sure I don't ever recall hearing them on the radio. Obviously, nowhere really showed rock videos apart from Top of the Pops, and they'd only show one or two a week. But I remember them turning up a hell of a lot on things like Checkers Plays Pop, and on things like, I mean, maybe they were never on Round Around, but I do remember them turning up. There's a clip I saw just the other day, actually, which is kind of hilarious, of Round Around with Mike Reed, where he introduces a band called Graduate, and it's the terrible mod band who will subsequently become Tears for Fears. But there was another one, which, again, I don't know if they had much in the way of a real pop career or whether they were just a bit of a curio, because they consisted of actual kids, as in young kids. And I think they may even have been brothers because there seemed to be a bit of an age gap between them. And I think there was either three or the four of them. The reason I, they call them on the pleasers is, again, they were doing this. And I don't know whether this is pre or post the jam, but they were in kind of mod suits. Although the only song I remember them singing sounded a bit status quo. And I can find nothing about these guys except one. There's an old copy, I think, of like Record Mirror or something which has been scanned in. And if you Google this band, it brings up that but I can't find them anywhere within the text. Do you have any memory of a band consisting of kids called The Missing Link? I do not, no. I bet I'm the only guy who remembers that. I remember these kids turning up on things like, I'm fairly sure they they had a song called Turn It Down, which was complaining about being asked to turn your stereo down by your parents. It's got a kind of status quo boogie to it, but I seem to recall them looking a bit sort of retro 60s and they're all wearing like mod suits and skinny ties, but they're all like an 11 or 12 years old. I remember this band turning up and singing this song, Turn It Down. Fairly sure I saw them on Blue Peter. Think I saw them on Swap Shop. Think they might have turned up on, you know, if they're on Blue Peter, they may well have turned up on like your magpies or something. I don't think they ever took a shot at anything like, you know, new faces or opportunity knocks because another band that you've discussed is that that scouse sibling kind of weird temptations knock off our kid. That's something else entirely. They were very much a kind of almost kind of chicken in a basket kind of stuff. Whereas these guys, you know, they were playing their instruments. They were trying to be a proper rock band, but they were kids. Well, I have found them on 45 Cat. They released yeah, one there was, single. There's one single. Yeah, yeah. The Missing Link, B-Side Teenage Rock. The label yeah. is Kid Rock that they're on yes that's kind of awkward yeah one with one thing or another and also the writing on the actual single itself is like kind of scrawly Simon in the Land of Chalk drawings writing yeah yeah I found that as well but the only text only the only possible text I could find out because I wanted to see if anybody remember them was talking about them or something Google brought up what I think it's either an old Melody Maker or an old Record Mirror or something from about 1980 so it's possibly slightly later than my mind was telling me because my mind was telling me this was like 77 or something but I think it's actually about 1980. Apparently, they are mentioned somewhere within the text of that paper, but I scanned through the whole thing and I couldn't see it. So, I don't know, is the simple answer. So, part of the reason I decided to at least start with the pleasers rather than those guys is because that conversation's a total dead end, because I literally cannot find, that's even more of a dead end than Orion was. You know, I mean, at least Orion seemed to refer back to an old 60s concept album with Phil Collins on it. You know, there was somewhere to start with that. And at least it had like an IMDb listing. But I cannot find 
anything about those guys. But that was a thing, wasn't it? A bands, there's sort of a lot of crossover between bands in the sort of the late 70s, you know, made the Aventies, I guess we're talking about, and kids TV. Well, that does sort of bring me neatly into the observation I've got about a kind of spin-off strand for this phenomenon, which is records by veteran acts that only seem to exist within children's TV. Whereas right. it was more an 80s thing where you get people like, say, I don't know, say Cockney Rebel or David yeah. Essex or actually, yeah. well, David Essex had a bit of a comeback phase later. Alvin Stardust to be a good example. Or yeah. Leo Sayer or Barbara Dixon, actually. I'll come back to one of their performances, remember, but they will put out something that was, you know, halfway likely to be a chart contender, but the industry wasn't behind them. But being, yeah. you know, veterans, they knew full well if they were offered the slot on Checkers Plays Pop and then one on Saturday Superstore at the weekend, do them both because that's, you know, the only exposure you're going to get. And there's all these records I suspect people who watch those shows will be familiar with. The rest of the world have got no idea about. I particularly remember there was a Barbara Dixon one where the chorus was something about having a winning hand. And on more than one performance of it, I saw her do that she appeared in a playing card during the chorus. Yeah, there was that whole world of those singles that were ignored by the wider world have found a home on children's TV. So they'd be alongside these bands. Well, of course, Alvin had that weird sort of renaissance in about 1980 when he signed a stiff. I've actually gone on about this at length on Twitter that Alvin Stardust had the most bizarre existence. And it's amazing nobody's made a movie about it or at the very least done one of those sky arts urban myths about it because everybody of our age and older knows that Alvin Stardust had two separate careers as two different rock stars in two different decades. That before he was a 70s glam rocker called Alvin Stardust. He'd been a 60s early Brit rock, pre-Beatles Brit rocker called Shane Fenton. What I only discovered quite recently is that he inherited both those names and personas from somebody else. It's the most bizarre thing. So he was two different rock stars in two different decades, but both those rock stars have been somebody else before because he wasn't originally Shane Fenton. He was His real name was Bernard Jury, and he was originally the roadie for a band called Shane Fenton and the Fentones, who did what you did in 1960 in Britain, which you sent an audition tape in for the BBC to get on one of their Saturday pop shows. And the BBC took so long to reply that by the time they got the letter back saying, yes, okay, you can come on, the lead singer, Shane Fenton, had died. He was only 17. He died of, like, rheumatic fever or something. But Shane Prime's parents didn't want the band to lose their shot just because their son had died. And so Bernard the Roadie was rather summarily promoted to be Shane too. And they went ahead and did the BBC session without ever owning up to the fact that it wasn't the original lead singer anymore. And then he then went on to have like about five or six hit records in the early 60s under the name Shane Fenton, turned up in a couple of movies and everything. Then that all kind of went away during the Beatles era. He got into artist management and everything. And then it happened again in 1973. In 1973, it's a singer-songwriter called Peter Shelley. is the Love Me, Love My Dog one, not the Buzzcocks one. He's trying to launch a record label, and he launches it with what is basically a spoof glam record called My Kukachu under the spoof glam name of Alvin Stardust. And he even goes on, a again, a kid's show called Lift Off with Aisha, performing it in character as Alvin Stardust in basically a clown costume, but then discovers to his alarm that it's charted and they want him on top of the pops, and he has no intention of actually becoming Alvin Stardust. So he starts casting around for somebody to become Alvin Stardust. First guy he asks is Marty Wilde, and Marty Wilde turns him down because he's already trying to reinvent 
himself as an astronaut glam star called Zappo, right? (laughs) So Marty Wilder's already got this scam. Marty Wilder's already got a similar scam on the go. And somehow it comes down to Bernard. And Bernard, who isn't doing much things, yeah, all right, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. And then he decides, rather than try and be colourful and wacky like Peter Zalvin, let's make him evil. Let's do evil glam star. Let's go, you know, to rather than be Shane, let's be Jack Polanson Shane. Let's be the evil gunslinger. So he buys a pair of black leather trousers and a black velvet shirt with massive collars on it. Then dyes his, he's ginger, he's naturally ginger, dyes his hair black and then suddenly realizes that in dying his, and this is like the day before he's got to go on the pops. He agrees to do this with like about 48 hours notice. He's dyed his ginger hair black and in doing so has accidentally dyed the sides of his head and his fingers purple so he gets a pair of big stick on black elvis sideburns sticks those on and buys a pair of black latex gloves and then puts some big evil rings on it and then turns up on top of the pops and just creates this weird evil rock star persona who sort of stands absolutely still with one elbow up and holding the microphone up and sort of making sort of weird clutching gestures at the camera and it's just such an alarming presence the record goes straight to number two the follow-up single which he does sing on jealous mind goes to number one and then he gets 40 years out of him but that's such a bizarre story i didn't i knew he'd been two different pop stars but it's literally only about three or four years ago i found out that both times he was given that name and persona by somebody else but yeah he had a real sort of Kinnear renaissance in the early 80s because he signed a stiff and started doing sort of proper kind of retro 50s stuff like pretend because he was after all pretty much a surviving first generation rock and roller it's amazing he didn't come up with a new name again <laughs> should have come up with a punk name he had a couple of hits like you say he had pretend there's also i feel like buddy holly but there was also i won't run away oh yeah it's the teen pregnancy song yeah it's appropriate for checkers plays pop alvin's teen pregnancy song which he will have been by my estimation about 43 when he recorded <laughs> But yeah, it's just a bizarre story, Alvin. It's amazing. I think the point is that that was the market that was actually buying seven-inch singles in the Aventies was basically 10 and 11-year-olds. First one I ever bought, I remember, was Come Back My Love by the Darts. But I remember reading an interview with Adamant about how, because everybody knows, of course, that Adam and the Ants were essentially two entirely separate bands. They were a punk band who then signed with Malcolm McLaren, and Malcolm McLaren persuaded them to fire their lead singer and get a 15-year-old girl in, and they become Bow Wow Wow. And then the lead singer, Stuart Goddard, managed to keep the name Adam and the Ants, and he reinvented himself as, you know, the jolly pirate dandy highwayman, Red Indian, whatever the fuck he was meant to be, and the rest of his band dressed accordingly. And in so doing, possibly kind of accidentally invented the new romantics, but that's another story i remember reading an interview with adam ant in which he said feeling rather bitter and resentful at being ejected by his previous band when he was putting this new band together actually consciously thinking to himself yeah whatever you guys can carry on kissing the nme's ass i'm getting in looking that's where my audience is you guys can you know desperately try and get on the whistle test I want to get on the swap shop because that's who was buying seven inch singles at the agencies. It was children. You know, it wasn't even the kids. It was children. It was eight year olds. It was nine year olds. It was, you know, I was 10 when Adam and the Ants broke and I felt like this was a band that was being directly marketed at me and all the better for it. Well, the dear old please has definitely put as much effort in, I would say. Well, I mean, you know, if anything, <laughs> you know, talking about bands who really, really obviously wanted to be the Beatles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's another way of doing it, I suppose. It's just essentially Beatles cosplay, which is what the pleasers were doing. But I'd say as well that anyone who didn't get invited to be on an equivalent of Here and Aid wasn't in it for the right reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If you're not invited to be in the charity choir, you're not trying hard enough. I don't no, think. this is true. Yeah, <laughs> obviously not. No. Or your guitar playing wasn't quite fast enough as to be completely indistinguishable from everybody else. <laughs> so, do you reckon, you know, not being a bad guitarist yourself, could you have slotted into that brace of solos on here and eight? Put it this way, you would have known when it was my turn. <laughs> well, sometimes that's what we want. Mitch, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. It's free. A big book of columns and features by Tim Worthington. More details at timworthington.org.